Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Barbara King, the author of Animals' Best Friends, putting compassion to work for animals in captivity and in the wild. As people come to understand more about animals' inner lives, the intricacies of their thoughts and emotions that are expressed every day by whales and cows, octopus and mice, even bees, we feel a growing compassion, a desire to better their lives. But how do we translate this compassion into helping other creatures, both those that are and are not our pets? Bringing together the latest science with heartfelt storytelling Animals Best Friends reveals the opportunities we have in everyday life to help animals in our homes, in the wild, in zoos, and in science labs, as well as those considered to be food. Barbara King, an expert on animal cognition and emotion, guides us on a journey in both animal and deeply human. We meet cows living relaxed lives in an animal sanctuary, and cows with plastic portals in their sites at a university research station. We observe bison free roaming at Yellowstone National Park and chimpanzees confined to zoos. We learn with King how to negotiate vegetarian preferences in omnivore restaurants. We experience the touch of a giant Pacific octopus tasting King's skin with one of his long neuron rich eyes. We reflect on animal testing as King shares her own experience as a survivor of, of a particularly nasty cancer. And in a moment all too familiar to many of us, we recover from a close encounter with two spiders in the home. This is a book not of shaming and limitation, but of uplift and expansion. Throughout this journey, King makes no claims of personal perfection. Though an animal expert, she's just like the rest of us, on a journey still learning each day how to be better and do better for animals. But as Animals Best Friends makes clear, challenging choices can bring deep rewards. By turning compassion into action on behalf of animals, we not only improve animals' lives, we also immeasurably enrich our own. Well, Barbara, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. Oh, it's great to have you here. So as we're going through the unprecedented times of uh, the pandemic, I suppose we're more um, in depth of it now, maybe towards the end, I say very, very cautiously. (laughs) So I would like to ask, how has it affected you and your work? Well, just as a person, I have felt such sadness and grief for so many global losses and for all the people who are either sick or grieving lost loved ones. 
a lot of my work in recent years has been on grief in the animal kingdom, but also thinking about grief in people. So I was able to write a little bit about how unnatural it is for us to be grieving the way that we are now. Of course, we're not in many cases allowed to be with family members in hospital or when a funeral is necessary, that looks very, very different. Our rituals are very, very upended. On a personal level, I've been very fortunate. I work at home and have for a while. So the extra time and quiet has been on some days welcome and on other days too much of a good thing. And lastly, I can note that I discovered birds during the pandemic and I have become obsessed with bird watching and bird photography. Oh, I really like that you mentioned uh, birds. That's something I did as well. So I put a couple of uh, bird seed uh, balls in the garden and I can see a lot of them coming in. Yes, I'm keeping a list of the species that appear in our yard. I live in suburban Virginia in the States, and I was very surprised by the variety that we get through the seasons and the most gorgeous birds just arriving on a daily basis. So I'm quite taken with this project. Hmm. Um, maybe you have uh, any advice uh, or some things that you adopted to cope perhaps with a situation that can be useful? To cope with the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have tried very much to reach out to people who are going through a hard time, whether they live alone or whether they've had sickness in their family or just in general in terms of making donations of time and effort. And that makes me feel somewhat better. Also, I just think for me, immersing in the natural world is very calming and very healing. And that's something that most of us can do wherever we live. If we live near any parks or if we simply have a balcony on our apartment building, spending time looking, taking pictures, taking sketches, making notes is very restorative. That's great advice. I really like reinforcing this. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. I sometimes think of this as the three A's. I'm an anthropologist, an author, and an animal activist. So as I mentioned, I live in Virginia with my husband, and I left university teaching five years ago now. So I devote myself to full-time writing and public speaking and to caring for the animals that we have here. We have rescued cats for many years, and we do quite a lot of um, activities with and for animals. So it's a very nice life, and it just worked out very well for me to make this choice to leave teaching. So it's very hands-on now. It always has been, but there's more time now, and I'm able to work from home and, of course, when possible, travel and meet people, speak at universities, speak at conferences. I'm looking forward to that being able to happen again. And have you studied anthropology before or what were you focused on earlier? Yes, in college, I always, uh, from the junior year forward, studied anthropology and in graduate school as well. I was very drawn to the subfield that we call biological anthropology, which encompasses many aspects of looking at the human condition, my part of it being 
studying originally monkeys and apes. Since then, my interest in animals has exploded well beyond other primates, but that is how I got my start. Interesting. Um, so do you have any uh, advice for young career uh, listeners on how to choose what they want to follow? Well, in my case, I was absolutely convinced that I wanted to become a doctor. And it was only in the third year of college that I stumbled into this biological anthropology course. And I realized that my attention and engagement just lit up and my brain lit up. And I do think it's important to, as you always hear, follow what makes you excited and engaged. I would also say that if you are interested in writing, to read, read, read across genres. And reading opens up the world in many ways to many possibilities. So that always was very important for me and sustains me now still. Were there any mentors that inspired you? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Were there any mentors that inspired you along the way? Oh, mentors, yes. Mm -hmm. In graduate school, I was so fortunate to study with a woman anthropologist called Jane Lancaster. And she had studied in Zambia, in Africa, uh, monkeys, and was part of this original first wave of feminist anthropology to have us look at how monkey societies are really organized, in many cases, not all, around females, and to look at human evolution processes through women and children as well as just men. So she had a really huge influence on me and was and is a very kind person. She helped me get to Africa to do my fieldwork, which was, of course, a major turning point. I was able to study baboons in Kenya for 14 months, walking out in the field with baboons and encountering what they encountered through the day. And that was a formative experience, and I owe a great deal to her. So how did you come to writing this book? Well, I have been writing books approximately every three or four years at these intervals because I discovered at a certain point in my career that writing only for other academics and other scientists really wasn't fulfilling me. I decided to try my hand at writing books for a general public and discovered that it was a great joy for me. So I've continued to do that. The book that I am publishing now, Animals Best Friends, Putting Compassion to Work for Animals in Captivity and in the Wild, is a natural extension in some ways of my previous books. The last two, one was about animal grief and the other was about the minds and hearts of animals we eat set a stage, if you will, is now that we understand globally just how profoundly animals think and feel, I thought it was time for me to write a book that's a kind of call to action for all of us together to really act compassionately every day in our lives for animals. And that's what the book is about. Yes, and I think you've done a really excellent job putting this message through. So uh, why do we have the need for reassessment of how we view, interact, and also manage animals? Well, we have an enormous need. It's, uh, there's so much I could say. The book focuses mm. on five contexts, contexts for making lives better for animals. Animals in our homes, in the wild, 
in zoos, in science labs, and animals thought to be food. And I could go through each of those and point out ways in which we really have failed animals. It goes from um, everything from habitat destruction and the environmental crisis to just putting animals uh, below us in a certain sense. We tend to have a perspective often of human exceptionalism. That is that we are superior, our society, our technology, our language is better, and therefore we have dominion over animals and we can use them as we wish. If you really think about how we entertain ourselves, so often we ask animals to sacrifice for us. This may be going to a theme park and watching dolphins and whales forced to perform, going to a zoo and watching animals held in captivity and they can never leave as we can leave the grounds at the end of the day, or even in our movies, the types of things we ask animals to do. So I really wanted to reflect upon that and of course, the food system and our science system are two of the major aspects that I take on in the book because here we just fail animals spectacularly. Yes, this aspect of categorization of animals into these relationship niches was really interesting to me, especially when you start comparing same animal, but if you look at it from different niche, for example, a cow, you can look at it uh, from the food part or companionship, isn't it? Oh, yes, very much. I mean, one of the things that has occurred to me ha has been that people in general tend to get very excited about new discoveries of intelligence in animals. There'll be a headline about you know, new tool use or new ability to recognize oneself in the mirror or just any kind of cognitive advance. But... This works really well if we're talking about like an orca, a chimpanzee, an elephant, a dog, or a cat. But once you start finding out that chickens and cows and goats and pigs are smart, people get a little less happy because a lot of times people don't want to know that the animals they eat are smart, that they have minds, that they have hearts, that they have emotions. Of course, I write about them grieving. And this is a really interesting disjunction that motivates me to think about all animals. And in some ways, this book owes a lot to animals like octopus and spiders and chickens because I've learned more and more about how smart they are. I've learned more about their lives. And I want to speak about how we can be compassionate and interested in them, not just the big brain mammals. That's excellent. And animal intelligence is something I'm really fascinated with. So let's discuss it a little bit. <laughs> so what is exactly animal intelligence and how do we know that animals indeed have it? There's so many ways to define animal intelligence. I'm probably most comfortable talking about <clears throat> the ways that animals go through their daily lives to reason and think their way through the day to solve problems. And of course, there's going to be, depending on the species, a mix of instinct at work, learning at work, reasoning at work, higher cognitive processes at work. So I don't wanna give the impression that I only care about animals who are highly, highly cognitive. I've come to think of, for example, spider cognition and octopus cognition, two animals I just mentioned, two invertebrate mammals, uh, animals, sorry, is having fascinating types of intelligence that we don't normally think of. 
So if you take an octopus, we know that the brain is distributed across the eight arms. So when an octopus is exploring his or her habitat, the arm is gathering information for an intelligent assessment of what needs to be done in that environment, how to get food or how to avoid predators or how to decorate one's environment um, with shells or how to escape a shark or anything like this. I have become so fond of spiders the more I read about spider cognition. There's fascinating articles written in science journals about how spiders have a rudimentary ability to count, that is to keep track of prey items on their webs by ranging over their webs and using their sensory systems to really judge what they've caught and what they have not. So in the beginning, when I started out my, my field work and my writing, I would focus on things like chimpanzees that use tools and elephants that organize themselves into complex societies. And we all know that that kind of intelligence is important. But so is this other kind that I've been talking about just now. Interesting. So you described your encounter with an octopus. Can you tell us how did that feel? I was lucky enough to be able to go to the New England Aquarium in Boston in the company of Cy Montgomery, who's a wonderful author who wrote Soul of an Octopus. And we met there aquarists who were behind the scenes with octopus and who felt very strongly that octopus individuals need enrichment, and stimulation in their lives. So I was allowed to meet octopus, two octopuses up close as part of this enrichment activity. And the male octopus, a giant Pacific octopus was called the professor. And he came mm. up and wrapped one of his arms around one of my arms. And I realized in that moment that this was an intelligent being tasting and examining and inspecting me. And it was quite a moving encounter for me because I don't feel at all that octopuses are alien looking. They're just different than we are. They organize themselves differently, but they flash their moods on their skin. They think about what they're doing. They explore their environment. And I saw this up close and it was especially poignant to me that I saw it in captivity because I do have very mixed feelings about keeping animals in captivity. So can we touch up on the subject of pets, for example? So what would be the best uh, practices and what is your view overall? With pets? Well, I do live with cats. Um, I call them companion animals. And I feel that we are giving them a very good life because we have rescued them from being homeless or stray or outdoors. So we try to give them enrichment through interaction with each other. Cats are often described as being solitary, and they certainly are not you know, pack animals, but they enjoy being with each other and observing each other. And we make sure that they have a lot of time in windows looking at birds, a lot of times with toys. We make sure that they're indoors so they're not able to go outside and kill wildlife. I think it's really important to think hard about how we keep animals and how we can try to allow them to express their species-specific nature as much as possible. So letting cats be cats, and at the same time, I do not allow that to extend to going outside and killing birds. So the ethical issue of keeping cats is keeping them safe by keeping them indoors, but allowing other animals to be safe as well 
by keeping them indoors. Now the problems and the issues will be different with dogs, rabbits, birds, but the same basic principles apply. I think that in a lot of cases, what is necessary is to merge keeping pets with animal rescue. So, you know, adopting animals who are in need from animal shelters, from places where they have to be rehomed, rather than going to breeders and spending money, you know, to, to help the breeding industry. Um, so what do we need to improve in their uh, welfare? Well, animals and food, I think, is the most pressing topic that we face globally on the earth as it relates to the climate crisis. So mm -hmm. our food system is seriously out of whack. And we know that animal agriculture is a major contributor to global warming and climate change. We know also that animals suffer greatly in our factory farms and also in many cases on smaller farms. So what I'm suggesting in the book is that the single best thing we can do for ourselves and for all fellow creatures on this earth is to the extent possible, reduce eating meat, reduce eating dairy, and, you know, as much as each individual can manage in their own circumstances. This will vary according to where we live, what resources we have, uh, what, what country we're in, you know, how, how much uh, ability we have to devote time and money to the food that we eat. But I think that the reducitarian movement, for example, is extremely powerful, that it is wonderful if you're vegan. I've learned so much from vegan activists, but not everyone is prepared to go vegan. And we need not think of this as a binary. It's not either you go vegan or you're a carnivore. There's something each one of us can do to reduce consuming meat and consuming dairy. And I've made a lot of strides in my life over the last five to 10 years in this. But what I write in the book is that it's really important, I think, to do this with some sense of humility, that everyone who's making a serious contribution should be welcomed and should be praised for making steps to contribute. And we can all push ourselves to do more. And of course, I do care a lot, not just about the fate of the earth, but how much it hurts animals to be slaughtered at say six months if you're a pig or a year or two when you're a cow. So it's not only the pain in terms of how these animals are reared and raised, but the extreme truncation of their lives and how arrogant it is that we think that we can do that. Interesting. Uh, so what can be done in terms of education uh, to achieve these, these, goal, these goals? Yeah, well, I mentioned the reducitarian movement and I would like to credit Brian Kateman for his reducitarian foundation and his reducitarian summits. They are so far held in the United States, but are international in scope. And I think that projects like this, projects that focus on food justice for people in all communities are very, very important and that they need to start young with children who can understand what it means to make food choices and how to make food choices 
that we can all invest in community gardens, to listening to people of color who are in many cases at the forefront. For example, in Detroit, there's these marvelous food collectives for suggesting how urban gardens can provide us with uh, plant-based healthy foods for all people. And telling kids when they're of the right age what it means that they're eating a cow or eating a chicken or eating a pig. You know, this great cognitive dissonance we instill in kids, read these cute picture books or see a fun movie about an animal and then serve up a hamburger. We need to talk to them about that. That's great points. And what about on a bigger level? So perhaps on a country, country level, or maybe some laws, would there be necessary to reform the system? Oh, well, certainly. I think that we need to work very hard mm. towards legislation against factory farming. Um, these large CAFOs, as they're called, concentrated farms with thousands of animals, are not only terrible for the animals, but they're absolutely terrible for pollution and for the human communities that live around these animals. And we need to make that very clear in our legislation and tighten up the legislation. Animal cruelty laws and all of the legislation that goes along with those need to be addressed. But I think that my particular project is to speak to people on an individual level that of course needs to be hooked up with the systemic level, but to say that we need to elect leaders who take these things seriously. So how we vote matters, how we spend our money matters, what food giant corporations we refuse to support and the plant-based companies that we can help. We also know that in addition to absolutely fabulous vegan food that's you know filling my refrigerator and my shelves two rooms away mm. from where I'm talking to you, we know that there are companies invested in uh, cellular meat or the type of meat that is going to occur without slaughter, but that is uh, built up from animal cells through technology. This can be called clean meat or cultured meat or whatever you want to call it. And I think the resistance to this type of meat is often based on a feeling that, oh, this meat is somehow, you know, a Frankenstein meat or it's, it's lab meat or it's somehow not healthy meat or, or it's dirty meat. And I ask people, really, think about what you're eating when you eat meat. I mean, mm. maybe, maybe vegans or people like me who are very happy with vegan food, I'm not 100% vegan, but I'm pretty close, don't need these projects products, but there are omnivores and carnivores all over the world who really need that taste of meat. And this would be a tremendous stride uh, systemically as well. And what is your opinion on using insects as a food? I've changed my opinion on this in the last couple of years. I was very big on it for, for a while, and I tasted some very interesting cricket products and other mm. things that are based in entomophagy or eating insects. And I certainly know that it's um, a major part of the cuisine globally in, in many countries. It's a hard one because ethically, it's possible that we could reduce some of the suffering from large mammals if we ate more insects. But at the same time, insects are living beings as well. So I would prefer to think about initiatives that focus more on scaling up plant-based foods and uh, cultured and cellular meat. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, you've tried the crickets. Mm -hmm. 
cricket tacos. Did you enjoy? They were, they, yeah, they were good. They tasted a little bit nutty, um, and I liked the taste. I didn't find it in any way, um, you know, repulsive. I, I I enjoyed this, and my friend and I went out to dinner in Washington D.C. and enjoyed the restaurant. But I also, at the same time, was writing, reading, and writing about experiments, non-invasive experiments, showing how much problem solving goes on in insects. Like we know that bees, for example, if they're given an experiment to say, roll a ball in a certain direction to accomplish a certain goal, this is in a laboratory, they do better when they watch each other. So the bees that are demonstrators go first and the naive bees who haven't done this before go second. And the bees that have a demonstrator do really well with solving the problem. They pay attention to each other. We, of course, know for many years about the complicated communication that wild bees uh, engage in. We know that termite, and, sorry, that crickets are actually pretty smart in, in their own insect ways. So I don't particularly like the idea of just suggesting that they're to be sacrificed for us. I mean, if I'm going to bring the question of food justice, social justice to animal lives and pigs and chickens and turkeys and octopus, you know, why stop? Why not think about the lives of the smallest among us? And why not think with some compassion about our pollinators that we need uh, in our lives? So what role uh, does compassion play in our relationship with animals, but also in, with insects? As you mentioned now, some of the insects are extremely intelligent, but why do we ha- find it hard to empathize with them? Yeah, I think it's natural for us to empathize more readily with animals that look like us or that are mammalian. I don't say that it's good, but I think it's understandable in that we've been raised with dogs, cats, horses, and documentaries on chimpanzees and elephants or what have you. And we can understand um, that sort of a little bit about how they think and how they feel sort of intuitively. So it's easy to put up that, that firewall of human exceptionalism when we consider animals that are more distantly related to us and it may take a little more work And I can give you an example with spiders. One of the chapters in my book opens up with an anecdote. This is years ago now where I walked into my bathroom. I was home alone and I saw two fairly large spiders together. And I was having quite a bit of trouble with spider fear at the time. I took a shoe and I bashed them to death. And I'm really very sorry that I did that. I actually feel great regret. I would not do that now. And I reacted out of a sort of, you know, evolved, if you will, instinct that these are, you know, creepy crawlers. And I was raised to not like spiders by my parents. And so this is what I did. Well, in the in recent years, I've spent time watching and photographing the large garden orb weaving spiders that we have here in Virginia in the late summer. And I've come to find them not only fascinating, but they've become objects of my affection. So I talk in the in the book about naming one Portia after a fantastic science fiction book by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Anyway, the idea is that for those of us who just see a spider or a bug crawling around the house and crush it with a tissue, it might take a little bit of work, but the more that we look at these animals and read about them and understand that they have their own 
evolved intelligence and how they spend every day, I think it's easy to cultivate that compassion. We can talk about it with each other. This works for any animal, really. And I, I think it's worth doing. And a big, big ask in the book is that we not have a knee-jerk reaction to, you know, cute animals versus creepy animals, but look and spend time and learn and think twice before we do harm to these animals. So it brings up this uh, reflection aspect, doesn't it, to be able to override your instincts? Yeah, and of course, not everybody has that same reaction. I know lots of people mm. who, who, you know, who have loved spiders always, who have loved snakes always. I have come late to this. I am looking forward to the month of May, which where I live is the time when we have snakes all over the yard. And I used to dread that. And now I don't at all. I have learned to appreciate and not to fear these animals. And I think what I'm, what the part of the message of what I'm trying to get across is that compassion and kindness, you know, should be global, not only for all people in the world, but for animals as well. And so that we don't just stop with, you know, going to the zoo and seeing the cute pandas. I mean, zoos are, are, are very problematic in my view in the first place, but it is an example of how people flock to a place to look at, you know, the monkeys playing and the pandas rolling around in the bamboo. And they don't necessarily go and look at all of the invertebrates who are wonderful and glorious and can teach us so much. You know, I, it would be my to my liking if we re-examine zoos to begin with, but I'm using them as an example of how people are drawn to certain animals and not others. And we can challenge ourselves when we think again about animals as food. Let's think about them in different terms of being intrinsically valuable in their own right and the same with insects as well. That's a really good point. And when it comes to our culture as well, so thinking about charismatic fauna we see everywhere, but you can barely get an oil painting of coelacanth, for example. So mm -hmm. yes. how do you yes. think we should uh, address it? Maybe more exposure or? Well, I think that in school, we can start by not necessarily keeping animals in the classroom, since I don't think that's always the best for animals. But mm. with all of the wonderful technology that we have now, showing a group of students what it's like to be an insect, what it's like to be a snake, show them up close science-based videos, documentaries, take them outside into the woods, let them see what is around them, and use compassion and kindness as the overarching concept that natural history studies can be done by children who are so naturally curious. And, you know, to have teachers really work with that respect that kids have and build it up across the board for animals. Do you see an uh, increase of use of technology, perhaps, to sort of uh, nurture our feelings of compassion for animals, for example, by placing cameras in the natural reserves to look at them? Because nowadays you can just uh, 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 stream, stream it, can you? Mm -hmm. Are there any other ways that technology can help? 
So yes, live cams are wonderful. I have a favorite one that I watch of bears in Alaska, for example, and also some places um, in East Africa, places where I did some of my field work where one can watch primates and zebras and other animals at waterholes. I think that is a good education tool. Another way to look at it is to think about VR or virtual reality. Because there are animal rights organizations, I think particularly of animal equality, who go into slaughterhouses and factory farms and film, and then show you wearing a VR headset, uh, a very immediate sense of what it is like to be an animal in one of these situations. I have seen and written about one of these films, which was uh, a pig slaughterhouse, and it was incredibly effective. Of course, it has to be age appropriate. I mean, we're not going to have, you know, eight-year-olds looking at films of slaughterhouses, but by high school, by college, I think that some of the immediacy of the, of the real horrors of what we do to animals can be brought home so that both sides, the beauty of nature, the reality of the ecosystems that we see that we need to protect in nature, and also some of the harms that come about. I would also very much wish that... Um, animal research laboratories would be more transparent about what they're doing. I don't see a, a future anytime soon where animal researchers are going to have live streaming their experiments in laboratories, but there has to be a way for us to be able to really understand what happens to say the 75, 80,000 monkeys kept in U.S. laboratories alone that are subjected to such really invasive experiments or globally the billions billions of rats and mice who undergo these experiments. And a lot of times, you know, the public doesn't really know what's going on in there. And I think that the undercover investigations are critical and that being able to critically read the, the, uh, the science that comes out of there to really look at the methodology. That's something, again, I do in my book to unpack what some of these scientific advances really mean for the suffering of, of animals when we have alternative ways of not using animals and advancing science uh, quite adequately. Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, there are a few initiatives around the world, like in Europe, three R's to reduce numbers of animals, but also investment into novel technologies like organoids, for example, research. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad that you brought up the organoids or the uh, mm. small models of 3D models of organs and the human tissue cultures. I am not a fan of the, I mean, the three R's doesn't go far enough as far as I'm concerned. The group of people that I'm working with is trying to apply really principles of social justice to thinking about keeping animals in captivity. So for example, we try to look at it as laboratory captivity is harmful in and of itself to animals. It's harmful physically, emotionally, psychologically. So it's not just about, you know, making the lives better for fewer animals. It's about really thinking about why we have the right to do this in the first place. It's a great point. So what would be the benefits to both human and also animal societies if we create more equitable way of uh, living alongside each other? Well, it's just better for all of us. I think that we all have co-evolved, all of these species, for a millennia and that all of us thrive better when there isn't this incredible sense of um, dominance of, of one over the other so that we can do better and be better for animals because they deserve it. Uh, animals deserve to thrive in their habitats. They deserve to not be you know, held captive for our entertainment. 
so that we can become transformed ourselves with, with greater happiness and greater satisfaction when we realize that we're doing well for other species and not making it all about ourselves. I think it's just a healthier way to live, a kinder and healthier way to live in terms of our food systems, how we treat the habitat, how we um, stop thinking in such hierarchical ways about who counts and who doesn't count in this world. And that's exactly what you put through in your book so well. It really makes you think and reflect, but also kind of consider the ways that each of us can actually make a difference in this. Yeah, that's right. And it's so important for me to to say that this book is very personal in terms of the stories that I tell. For example, I talk about how I went through um, a long treatment for a particularly nasty and aggressive uterine cancer and how this has made me feel a heightened sense of empathy and compassion for animals who undergo invasive procedures. Because when I, when my own body was invaded, if you will, it was done to help me. It was done with my best interests in mind. And many, many of the experiments that are done to animals are, of course, not done with that in mind at all. And it has made me think about how I should be doing better for animals and that I still have a ways to go. I do not write this book as a person who has arrived at a place in my life where I'm complacent with what I'm doing, how I'm eating, or how I live my everyday life. And so I'm saying to people, you know, come join me in this book and let's see how we can encourage each other to do better. And that it's very, very important to have a sense of humility about how each of us approaches this not as having the right answer, but as being willing to go on a journey together of asking these questions and thinking about what to do. Yes, I'm sure um, our listeners are going to really enjoy Animals Best Friends. Okay, so we've taken up a lot of your time. And can you tell us what are you currently working on? Well, right now, everything is uh, going towards this book because it's just about to be published. And I am writing essays for magazines in support of the book. I am arranging um, Zoom online events. As, as we know, it is not possible to do in-person audience events and, and book talks as we might have done in the past. So really, I am all book all the time, right at this moment. And what would be your next project? Or perhaps it's a bit early to talk now, isn't it? Well, not really. I've actually written a proposal for the next book, and I'm sitting with it and thinking about it. And part of my idea is to write a book that thinks about grief in a different way than I did before. Until this point, the aspect of my work that has really had the strongest response has been about animal grief. So the book, How Animals Grieve, came out in 2013. I did uh, a TED Talk at a conference in Vancouver, Canada in 2019 that has had now 3 million views about animal grief. And I tapped into some kind of very enthused vein in, in doing this work. People want to think about the relationship between love and grief in ourselves and how other animals grieve for their own lost loved ones. But I think there's more to be said because we're entering this period where many of us feel a type of ecological grief. Many of, of us are grieving for extinct species. 
for habitat destruction, for the climate crisis that is changing the earth. And I think there are lessons to be learned in thinking through how grief manifests and how it can lead to change and adaptation and resilience. And those are the ideas that I'm playing with right now. Oh, that sounds like a super interesting project. Thank you. I'll I'll give it some time. (laughs) Where can our listeners find more information about the book, but also your work, your articles? Yes, I keep my website pretty well up to date, which is www.barbarajking.com. Everything is there, including the information about the books. You can see the TED Talk there. And I post major articles there. I'm also very active on Twitter and I would love to interact with people. It's at BJ King Ape. That's A-P-E. And I'm on there every day posting about science and books and animals and lots of birds lately. (laughs) So what would be your take home message for our listeners? I think what I would say is when you act for animals to be better for animals it really is transformative it feels good to us to do that because we know we're doing our part collectively for the earth and i want to end by saying that i want to recognize it can also be very hard to feel and enact compassion for people who are deeply and profoundly empathetic for the natural world and for other animals It can be hard because we know that we're not doing enough, even though we're trying. And I just want to have a support and encourage each other. And I hope my book is part of that conversation. That's an excellent message. Well, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for this interview.